I invite you to open your Bible to Micah chapter 1. Micah, it's at the end of the New Testament. Micah chapter 1. We just got started looking at Micah last week, so if you weren't here, you didn't miss uh, much, you can jump in with us in Micah chapter 1. If you are at Jonah, you're close. Keep going. If you're at Nahum, you're too far. Move back one. Do not cross go. Do not collect $200. Micah chapter 1. And I want to begin tonight just by reading you the text. We're going to cover Micah chapter 1, verse 2 through 9. Micah 1, 2 through 9. Listen carefully to what God says. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth and all it contains. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Is it not the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All her earnings will be burned with fire. All of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. This is the very word of the living God. Let me pray one more time. Father, I'm grateful for this opportunity to open the Scriptures tonight. And I'm grateful that you brought these university students here to, to listen to your word. And I, I am so aware, and I know they are, of how important it is that they're here tonight. Because we need to hear from you, O oh God. We need to understand how to think about your impending judgment. We need the testimony of a prophet who lived almost 3,000 years ago to help us know how to live today. The world we live in is oftentimes hostile to our Christian faith. The world views that surround us are opposed to the way that the Scriptures present the way we're to live and serve and worship. So God, be with us tonight and help us understand how to think rightly about your judgment, how to think that way in a way that has a prophetic compassion. Instill in us a love for your holiness, a love for justice, and give us the tears that are necessary to communicate that message to a, a world under judgment. Help us to not think that, that we will escape that judgment apart from Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
God Hates Fags is the name of a website and the motto of a church called Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. That jarring and offensive phrase is their byline. They have protested for decades the funerals of military veterans or well-known homosexuals who have been the subject and object of this church's ministry and ire. They are a group that's been covered on national news because they're famous for their commitment to the hatred of God. Now, many Christians have criticized them, uh, Christians of all varieties, uh, disavowing that they're, uh, that they're Baptists, that they're church, and, and that they're, I mean, that you, I guess everybody admits they're from Kansas. But beyond that, uh, and some of those, those criticisms have, have leveled the idea that, well, that's not true. God loves everyone, and God isn't a God of hate. But that's not a very careful critique if you've ever read the Bible. Because God is a God of judgment and wrath. God does communicate a distaste and a even vehement anger towards sinners. And many of those sins, not just the sin of sex, homosexuality or other sexually immoral sins that the Bible lists throughout its pages, are the subject of God's anger and wrath. And so perhaps some have been confused by a movement that we know represents something that isn't coming across in a way that honors God or honors Christ and isn't implementing biblical principles and certainly isn't acting as a church. But maybe you've wondered, how do you communicate the judgment of God, God's promise to destroy sin in a way that reflects the biblical balance of judgment and compassion that communicates God's hatred for sin and the dangerous position that all sinners find themselves, but not act like that judgment isn't also yours by just desert. Well, welcome again to the book of Micah. Micah, like all the Old Testament prophets, had a message from God to give. Micah, like all the Old Testament prophets, especially the 12 minor prophets where we find his prophecy, has an emphasis on God's judgment, God's wrath, God's anger. In the opening words that I read to you of his oracle is an oracle of judgment, a word of vision he received in verse 1 from God concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, his own people. That is unmitigated in its description of God's coming impending doom. How do we operate? How do we minister? How do we evangelize? How do we preach in a way that represents a biblical balance? The, the prophets all speak of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Micah's ministry is exemplary in that way because he speaks of the judgment of God. He also speaks of of forgiveness and compassion. His ministry is a little different than the other prophets as well. Many of the prophets saw very little come of their ministry. But as we'll see as we look at some of the background of Micah in coming days, 
Micah actually did lead to lead many to rescue because of his prophecies. King Hezekiah, according to the prophet Jeremiah, was moved towards repentance and salvation. And the people of God and the people of Jerusalem were actually rescued because of this word of warning that came from the prophet Micah's lips. But how do we communicate God's judgment? How do we do it in a way that that represents the appropriate biblical balance of the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and His rightful and deserved judgment? I think that's one of the main things we'll learn in the book of Micah, and it's certainly the lesson for us tonight. In looking at these few verses, we get a really a taste of what Micah's preaching would have been like. This is the first sermon he would have given, and what's contained for us in the book of Micah, and it's, it's brief chapters, uh, just seven chapters of, of prophecy, is, it has to be a summary of the 60 plus years of ministry that Micah conducted over the reign of these three kings. This is a consolidated or an encapsulated or a, uh, the message in a nutshell. This is what Micah's preaching would have sounded like. There would have been more to it than this. And so God has given us this, this distillation of, of Micah's preaching inspired by the Holy Spirit for our instruction, like all the Old Testament, to help us understand how we should think about God's judgment and a prophet's compassion. And so tonight, if you like to title sermons, this one's called God's Judgment and a Prophet's Compassion. And I'd like to look at this in four parts. And we won't belabor these things because we're going to see so, we're going to learn so much about God's judgment. And it's a multifaceted thing like every attribute of God, His holiness, His love, His omniscience, all of those attributes of God could be looked at in different ways and angles. And because He's God, the depths could never be fully explored. But the book of Micah is going to give us ample opportunity to look at various aspects of the judgment of God. Tonight we're introduced to the concept of God's judgment, but it's also introduced to us in a way that shows us how when God's judgment is spoken on the lips of someone who understands the compassion of God and also understands how much we ourselves deserve the judgment of God. It's a very powerful message. Uh, Unlike those hate-filled false teachers in Kansas, Christians need to understand that the message of God's judgment isn't one that we can deny, but it's one that we must minister in a way that honors the character of God and is impacted by the reality of judgment and compassion. So let's look first at verse 2, uh, and we'll call this little, little verse the God above all. The God above all. Remember, verse 1 introduced us to his ministry, this man Micah of Morasheth. He was a, a shepherd kind of guy. He was from a, a rural place 20-some miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, the kingdom, you'll remember, just for context, is divided, and I'm giving this you this brief ge- geometry. Geometry. Ha 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 ha! My my, all my kids are homeschooled now. Uh, my one of my daughters is in geometry, and so you can tell I have geometry on the brain. The thing I'm trying to say is geography. Have you heard of it? Uh, it's maps and stuff. 
So the reason I'm giving you this brief lesson in, in geography, it's hard for me to say that word, is because this passage of Scripture prominently features two capital cities. And if you didn't get that, you'd think this was some poetic thing that you could kind of apply however you want. No, it's actually talking about two real places. And one of those places is Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Israel is the, also known as the northern kingdom, okay? Israel derived her name from the patriarch Jacob, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so that, that people, that nation is named after Jacob. And sometimes the Bible calls Israel Jacob. And just like God called Jacob Israel, the Bible calls Israel the nation after the name of its forefather Jacob. So maybe that'll help you understand some of the words you'll hear tonight. When you hear the word Samaria, it's talking about that capital in the north, that capital that would fall to the Assyrian army during the prophecy of Micah. His warning about judgment would be fulfilled in his lifetime before their very eyes. Samaria, that northern capital. Now, just south of there, across the border of this divided kingdom, split by a civil war, the southern kingdom is called Judah. The capital of Judah is Jerusalem on Mount Zion, uh, up on that holy hill, the place that was designated by God to be the place where he would meet with his people, the place where David's son Solomon would build the temple that would replace the tabernacle that followed God's people all through their wanderings in the Old Testament. That was that sacred place of worship. This would remind you of stories that you're familiar with in the New Testament about uh, that woman in Samaria who had a small debate with Jesus about which mountain should we worship on. Remember that? Is it this mountain or is it, is it Jerusalem? Is it our Father's mountain or this one? Well, that woman was the Samaritan woman. And so the Jews that were part of Israel in the north their capital and their center of, of governance, their center of worship was Samaria. In the south, they thought they were the real Jews because they had the real capital, and that was Jerusalem. And Micah's from the south. But these were one people, just like in the American Civil War. It was brother against brother. It was the same thing with Israel and Judah. And so that gives you just, again, a reminder of the context of this prophecy. And so... We have here Micah, this rural kind of nobody. We know nothing about his family. We know nothing about his significance except that he had a long prophetic ministry and he had something to say, not just to his people down south in Jerusalem, in, in Judea, or in, in Judea, or not just to those kind of perceived as half-breed or uh, you know, lesser uh, people up in the northern kingdom with their capital Samaria. But verse 1 says, He saw a vision, something to him from God. The word of Yahweh came to him concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so here you have this guy whose responsibility is to talk to all of God's people. But in verse 2, you see his message comes from God. And God is so not like the local deities of the pagans restricted to their particular focus or emphasis. Uh, Baal, the fish god of the... or uh, Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines. Or, or Baal, the Canaanite god, particularly worshipped in reference to 
hills and high places. Uh, Dagon, particularly uh, worshipped in reference to the sea. Ancient deities often had powers that were exclusive to their specialty, restricted to their regions. And suddenly, you have a prophet from the God who claims to have created this whole world. And the opening words of this prophecy in verse 2 are a summons, an indicative word. Hear, listen. A summons to hear, O peoples, all of you, listen. Another imperative word, O earth, and all it contains. Hear, O peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that fills it. It's this international summons that reminds us that this prophecy had not just its object of those two capital cities, but this prophecy had its object as the people of all of the earth are called by God to be, in verse 2, witnesses against Jerusalem and Samaria. God's judgment speech begins by reminding all who will hear it that God is not a local God. He's not a parochial God. He's not a provincial God. And He's not some deity who specializes just in Israelite culture and worship. He is the God who the whole world answers to. And like all the other prophets in the Bible, the Israelites were used to hearing their preachers, their prophets, go after the nations to utter a word of lament towards Egypt, to utter a word of lament towards the peoples of the East, or towards the the Lebanon, or towards Syria, or towards Babylon. And you could hear the people rejoicing as this prophet from God with a vision of God and a word from God says to the whole earth that all the nations need to listen. All the people need to open their ears and hear. Listen, O earth, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. You see, this is so familiar in prophetic language that the prophet would call the entire earth to prepare itself for the judgment of God. And God's covenant people, Israel, often would smile smugly as their prophets would speak against the earth, would promise that a future day was coming when God's people would finally be delivered from the oppression by those surrounding nations, when the exclusivity of their worship would be known to be the only true worship. That's how this prophecy starts. It starts by showing us that this is a God, not just of Israel, but a God who has authority over all the world. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that fills it. You know, this God of international or universal power is portrayed to us to be above everything. He is, in verse 2, a witness against them, the Lord Yahweh. That's the word Adonai. It speaks of His Lordship. It's Lord God. Notice God is in all capital letters. It's a covenant name of God. But then it says where His locale is. He's speaking not from the temple in Jerusalem, and He's speaking not from the mountain where they worshipped in Samaria. The Lord is speaking from His holy temple. You see, it's heaven itself that's being depicted here. 
Heaven itself that's being shown to be the abode of God. This place above all earth where God dwells. And so this word of prophecy comes from the God of all the universe, the King of all the universe who is on His throne in His holy temple. This is the God whom Micah represents, the God of Israel. And the people must have wondered what kind of judgment will God bring to these evil, wicked, pagan nations? What kind of word will God assure His people with to protect them? Since He delivered us from Egypt and put us in our land, what will God say to that ominous, foreboding, massive, dangerous Assyrian army that's warring all around us and seemingly coming closer and closer? What will God say to Babylon? What will God say to assure His people of His covenant love and protection? Where can they hear a word of judgment from this Lord? They knew He was the Lord of all the earth, but the rest of the earth didn't think so. So like in Joshua chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Behold, the Ark of the Covenant, that's that most sacred piece of furniture that was Israelite possession, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. He'd always been called the Lord of all the earth. And so they thought this judgment must have been directed like so many prophetic judgments before them towards their enemies. And their suspicions had to only be confirmed as we move into verses 3 and 4. So if the first section is the God above all in verse 2, the second section we can call it the judgment comes down. In verses 3 and 4, the judgment comes down. And so what is this word of judgment from this all-high and lofty universal God? It's for behold, Yahweh is coming out from His place. Now that is a shocking statement. It's not unusual in that there is other times when God is pictured as coming down. People call it a theophany, an appearance of God, kind of a a funny and fancy word to speak of God manifesting Himself here among us. The word theophany, I don't like it because it sounds so distant. It's the exact opposite of what's happening here. This isn't a theophany. This is the universal God in all over all of heaven, over all of the earth, leaving His throne room. That's what's happening in verse 3. For behold, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is coming down from His place. This isn't the appearance of Santa Claus. This isn't the appearance of, of someone coming to dinner. This is the God of the universe leaving His throne room to be here among the people of earth. And the description continues in a foreboding way. He will come down Twice telling us the direction of His coming. And what will He do when He arrives? He will tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt beneath Him. And the valleys will rip themselves open like wax melting before fire. Like waters rushing down a slope. How does that sound to your ears? Well, it shouldn't sound distant and far off like verse 2. You see, the transcendence of God, His above all locale, has suddenly become 
his starting point. And his destination is here on this earth. So God is no longer perceived to be distant or far off, or removed and inaccessible, and He's certainly not provincial. He comes, He appears, and He tears the world to shreds. This should be to sinners a terrifying description of God. He treads upon the high places of the earth. That's two ways of speaking about both hills and mountains and places where people would worship false gods. The peoples of verse 2, the earth of verse 2 is shown to be the earth of verse 3, the mountains of verse 3, the valleys of verse 3 or 4. These verses are showing God is now physically proximate on earth. He has come down and He's here not for a cup of tea. He's here in a scary kind of a way. In a terrifying kind of a way. He's come and He's tearing the world apart. There's lots of places in the Bible where God speaks like this. Where His judgment is poetically described as being cataclysmic. Like a volcano or an earthquake. God's judgment when it comes down to earth is devastating. You could look at Psalm 18 or Isaiah 64 or that maybe the best place to look would be the prophet right next door to Micah, the guy named Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. He says it this way, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. The description goes on in Nahum's prophecy to speak of mountains shaking because of Him in verse 5. Hills dissolving because of His judgment. And indeed, verse 5, the earth is upheaved by His very presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Verse 6 asks the question, obvious question, who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger when His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him? It's that kind of a moment. It's the kind of moment that makes us shake and quake as we watch something that we usually take for granted, the terra firma, to no longer be dependable to us. Mountains are treaded down. Mountains melt like candle wax. Valleys are destroyed from within themselves. And everything is let loose in total chaos on earth because of God's judgment. Judgment is coming down. And still, God's people have heard this so many times before. And so I'm sure that they were gleeful because they often were. As you would be as well if you had been the object of international scorn. If you're, in the words of Psalm 139, your children had been ripped out of your hands by these invading armies and your babies and infants were smashed against the rocks, you also would wonder when God would avenge you. 
you would wonder when God would set things right. If we're His chosen people, if he, we have God's favor, then when is He coming to punish all the wrong in this world? If you don't believe there's wrong in this world, I think you should read a little bit more history and look in the mirror on more than, than one occasion a day. And you'll remember the darkness of the human heart because the human heart is, is totally and completely and absolutely sinful. Our depravity is evident both by historical account as, as genocide and, and war and injustice have, have torn civilizations to shreds. Humanity has demonstrated their sinfulness over and over again. And if you've thought about the own inclination of your heart and the way that your conscience has testified against you when you've done something that you know is wrong, you start to understand that sin deserves punishment. And the worst the sin, whether you're thinking of something like pedophilia or something like genocide, I'm sure that you would agree that that's something that needs to be punished. It's something that needs to be done away with. And so we can all understand the basic concepts of justice. And so the Israelites hearing this, this apocalyptic destruction of the entire planet's surface are wondering, why is God acting like this? Who is He coming to destroy, to melt, to burn? Who, who should be quaking in their boots? And verse 5 had to be the most shocking possible answer that they could hear. And so if verse 2 is the God above all, and verse 3 and 4 is judgment coming down, verse 5 and 6, to give it a little heading, is judgment comes home. Judgment comes home. What happens in verse 5 is shocking. All this, it says. All what? All verse 3 and 4, the melting, the quaking, the tearing apart. All this, chapters 1 through 7, the judgment prophecies, the oracles that will unfold in three massive movements. All of this. The whole prophecy of Micah and the judgment of God that's terrifying. All of this is because of the transgression of Jacob. Shocking. They knew God to be faithful to His covenants. But they also knew that that covenant required fidelity, adherence, Mutual agreement that God had always kept his end of the bargain, but the people had to know that they had fallen short. Because Micah didn't minister alone. They'd heard from Amos, they'd heard from Isaiah, they'd been warned about their sin, and now they're being reminded that God's judgment, though it will be inclusive of all the nations in this prophecy, begins in his own house. All of this is because of the rebellion. That's the word transgression. Better translated, rebellion of Jacob. Their forefather Jacob. The rascal that was converted in a wrestling match with God in the book of Genesis. Their father, their patriarch, their namesake. It's Israel's rebellion. Jacob here stands in the place of the nation Israel. Jacob is long dead and buried. 
This isn't about Jacob's sin against his brother or against his father. This is about national identity and national sin and rebellion. The book of Micah will go on to explain the depth of the societal injustices. And the, the, the focus first, though, before it gets to all these sins that the people are committing against each other and the leadership against those they're intended to be watching over, it starts first with the sins that are vertical. The way that the nation of Israel or Jacob has sinned against God. And it says, all of this is because of the rebellion of Jacob. And for the sins of the house of Israel. It then personifies these nations by using the word, your Bible says what? It's actually the word who. Who is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? Who is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? And so suddenly Micah's prophecy has begun to set its focus like the scope of a rifle, like a bow pulled back, carefully aimed. The question was, why is God acting like this? Why is He coming down to stomp mountains and to melt valleys and to rip the face of this earth apart? Why is He dealing harshly? What is He so angry about? Well, now they have their first answer. It's the sin of His own people that has set Him off. It's the rebellion of Jacob. It's the high place of Judah. This is clearly an indication in the use of that word high place, first in verse 3, then in verse 5, that there is a predominant concern that has caused the wrath of God to be the focus here. And it has to do with high places. Without dragging you all over the Old Testament, you could just note that 1 Kings 11 or 1 Kings 14 and various other places in the Bible describe pagan false worship to be done in high places. Often associated with false gods, with idol worship, with uh, animistic kind of spiritualism that involved worshiping nature and usually involved either the sacrifice of children to these uh, bloodthirsty gods or sexual acts with cultic prostitutes as acts of worship. This was ugly stuff and Israel was tainted by it. She participated in it. Sometimes through intermarriage among people uh, from Israel, covenant people with these pagan nations. Other times just through trade, through cultural influence, the people of God had become like the world as it pertains to their worship. And this is enough reason for God to come down. To leave heaven's throne room and to come on earth and exercise judgment against His people. You know, the New Testament reminds us that judgment begins, in the book of Hebrews, judgment begins with the house of God. That was the way it was then, 2,700 years ago, and that's the way it was now. It's a lesson for all of us to remember that God's judgment shouldn't first be in your mind as something for them. But God's judgment should first be in your mind as something for us. Something that we deserve. 
And so judgment comes home in verses 5 and 6. He gets explicit in verse 6, telling them exactly what he will do. I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I'll pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. Omri was the founder of the city of Samaria. It sat in an advantageous position between the western desert and the eastern coast. It was an easily defensible position and a city that had been considered one of the most unassailable places in that region. Up on a hill with good vantage points and difficult to scramble up and attack, she was able to defend herself quite well. But that defense was going to be useless when God sent the Assyrian army to begin a long-term siege that first went through Samaria, the capital in the north, and then would make its way down to a three-year siege of Jerusalem. And both these cities eventually would fall. The description of the, the totality of her destruction is in verse 6 and 7. Instead of a cosmopolitan city in the ancient world, it's going to look more like a grapevine. Just rocks on a hill. Plants growing up. Not a place of cultivation. A place of destruction. The stones that once made these walls impenetrable were now rolling down this hill all the way to the valley. The foundations of the city laid bare. Verse 7, more consequences are given. All her idols are smashed. All her earnings will be burned with fire. All her images I will make desolate, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. This part's a little tricky in Hebrew, and people understand verse 7 in different ways, but I think the idea is fundamentally the same. It comes down to this. God's primary problem with His people was that their worship had become corrupted. Interesting, isn't it? They had exploited the poor among them. They had cheated one another in various ways that he'll get into later in Micah. There had been a kind of inappropriate governance that wasn't pleasing to God. There was a kind of not fair dealing between neighbors that wasn't pleasing to God. But God's first problem with His people was that their worship had been tainted by sin. Idolatry had come among her and God was committed to destroying that idolatry. The wages that they had made were burned with fire and there's some kind of connection between their finances and their worship, whether it was the purchase of idols or the participation in cult prostitution. He said that there was going to be some kind at the end of verse 7 of a trickle down. All this, this money and investment they'd made in this false worship in this cult prostitution, would be paid back in harlot's wages. Does that mean that the Assyrians came and took all their money and then went and spent it on their own hookers or prostitutes or whatever? Maybe. Does it mean that this earnings was, would really not be their earnings? And, and it's, I mean, there's something here that says in verse 7 that this is self-defeating. That all that they had compiled was for nothing because their sin had come to the nose of God 
for his judgment. Well, God's wrath and God's judgment is crystal clear in this passage. And you know what? It's crystal clear all throughout the Bible. If you read the Bible honestly and fairly, without trying to cram your own ideas into it, you can read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you will find that God is a God of wrath, a God of settled, determined anger, because He's a God who is holy, who detests sin and unrighteousness, who hates unfair dealing, who stands on behalf of of the lowly and the hurting and despises their exploitation. God hates cheating. God hates lying. God hates the breaking of faithful covenants. He hates adultery. He hates divorce. He hates anything that rebels against His natural order in society, in marriage. God is said repeatedly to hate every evil thing. But the thing He hates most of all is corrupt worship. And so here we have a God of wrath in clear display. And in the New Testament, we are reminded in Romans chapter 1 that that God is still a God of wrath. That His wrath is settled and determined focused. But what we have in these closing verses, verse 8 and 9, is the prophet crying from below. The prophet crying from below. And I think in this moment, we see the prophet modeling for us how to think about God's judgment and hold on to real compassion. Look at verse 8 and 9, and then we'll wrap up. Because of this, I must lament and wail. This is Micah talking. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. Okay, this is some ancient Near Eastern talking. When we grieve, we dress in black, we quietly weep, we huddle with our families, we spend some time on our own. In the ancient Near East, when you weep, you sound like a wild person. It's that kind of a thing. That woke some of you up. The ancient Near Eastern worship was a different kind of culture and a different kind of expression. They cried hard and loud. And Micah's tears flow freely. He goes barefoot and naked. Literally is stripped of his clothes because of his sorrow over the sin of his own people. Comparing them to jackals and ostriches. An incurable wound is the sin of the people that has come to Judah, reached the gate of the people, even to Jerusalem. What's commendable about Micah here is that Micah is a weeping prophet. Micah's a prophet that cares and cries because he knows that he deserves the judgment of God because Jerusalem and Samaria are not some out there places. They're 25 miles from home. They're right down the street from Moresheth. And when you're talking about Jacob, you're talking about him. So if you're going to talk about the judgment of God, I would urge you to be aware that you also deserve the judgment of God, that you also are ought to be a recipient of God's wrath. And so we don't look at this world lost and confused in their sin and say, you're getting what's coming to you. Instead, we look at them with tears in our eyes and recognize that because of Jesus, because of the cross of Christ, we actually are able to have compassion when we think and talk about the judgment of God. And you see, Micah isn't our ultimate example of that. You know who is? 
It's Jesus. Look with me at Luke chapter 14, 13. You might know this passage. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says. The city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. This is an indictment of Jerusalem by the Son of Man, by Jesus the Messiah, sent to save this city. This is the city that had burned, destroyed, and sawed in half Isaiah, that had fought against the prophets. And it says, how often, Jesus says, I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, You will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you hear the pathos in Jesus' voice? He knows that they will reject him like they rejected all the prophets before him. But you hear his compassion on his own people, Jerusalem. Jesus was a compassionate prophet. If you go forward just a few chapters to Luke chapter 19, I think there's an even greater example of Jesus' compassion, even when He knows the deserving judgment of God. Luke 19, verse 41. When He approached Jerusalem, Jesus, He saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you, and ham you in on every side, and they'll level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Here is Jesus Christ about to go to the cross to die on behalf of His people, to purchase a people for God, the the just Jesus for the unjust us. And he says with tears in his eyes, he laments and wails and cries about God's impending judgment. You know why he does that? Not because God's judgment is something for you to plug into your calculator to think about in a cold and calculated way. It's because God's judgment is something that we as sinners deserve. And when we talk about God's judgment, it should be with the tears of Micah and the tears of Jesus of Nazareth flowing down our eyes as we beg people to repent, to turn from God, to abandon false worship, to take seriously their sin. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for this night. Thank You for the gift of rain that waters the earth and our heads. God, would You reinforce in our hearts tonight as this water falls from heaven how important it is that tears need to fill our eyes when we speak of Your judgment. May we delight in mercy, not sacrifice. Give us that lesson from Micah the prophet so that we might be compassionate prophets ourselves who know and preach the judgment of a holy God against sin, but do so with compassion and mercy, knowing the wrath that we preach about is wrath that we deserve the wrath that Jesus took on Himself on the cross. In His name, Amen.